Patrick. Nice. I am Patrick. I'm an alcoholic. <laughs> my sobriety date was 29 March 1980. And since that day, I haven't had it necessary to have to drink alcohol in order to love somebody, in order to have a fight or an argument with somebody. I don't have to drink booze to get up in the morning and go to sleep at night. I don't have to drink booze to go to or from a job. I don't have road trips that I count in six packs or cases. <laughs> I haven't had it necessary to hide anything when I see a police officer behind me. <laughs> I don't find it necessary anymore to wake up at 7 o'clock in the morning or 6 o'clock in the morning thinking that I've got to have a drink and start drinking in the shower. I don't have it necessary to look outside anymore and think, just what another crappy day. And that I'm real grateful for, and I thank you for that. I... Uh, did get to spend a little bit of time with Scott in the bar line. I heard I spent a little time with him, and I now know more about him than I ever hoped to. <laughs> I didn't know why uh, things were that way until I came to hear the gracious speaker this morning, and you did a fine job. I want to thank you on that. Uh, and Bunny, uh, I know why they call it the way out group now. <laughs> There's, there's, there's no doubt in my mind why they call it the Way Out Group after listening to Bunny just live it. I love her, but uh, I'm convinced that she was there first and they named a group around her. <laughs> she charged me up from the, just, just right off the bat. I, uh, and, and I have a lot of, uh, I have a lot of respect uh, uh, for Gisela because, uh, as you notice, uh, Bunny tried to affiliate her and Gisa real quick got up and said, no, I just go over there every once in a while. <laughs> so Gisa is doing better. But, but I like this conference. I like the people down here. I, I, I like this conference. I like what I hear. I, I like this conference. I like to get to see people. I like this conference because it was one of the first conferences that I came to. Uh, I, I like this conference. It was, it was one of the first conferences that uh, I was uh, privileged enough to get to, to speak at. I, I, I don't speak a lot, and probably before I'm through, you'll know why. But uh, I, I like this place. I like the energy that's in this place. And I'm a real energetic, uh, sort of driven kind of a guy, and, and, and I like that. I, I like what I heard from Scott last night. Uh, uh, you know, I like, I can identify with Scott. He, he flew airplanes and did his thing at 45,000 foot. And, I flew airplanes and did my thing at corporate ground, and, and that's how it was, because down there I figured you had to watch out, and up there you have to watch out, and, and I don't know why he flew, I know why I did, because it was something that I could do that you couldn't, and at that point in time it was real important how much better I was than you, and I think that if AA has taught me anything, it's taught me I'm not better. Yeah. I, I think different, and like the lady said this morning, thank God because if I didn't, we'd all be alike, but I think different, but I'm not any better. And uh, I, uh, I've got a personal deal that we wear these badges, and I'm real sensitive to that. I, I don't like to be that different. Uh, but I, I, and I was thinking about that this morning, uh, sitting there drinking my coffee, getting ready to walk outside, and I thought, you know, I have this badge that identifies me as a speaker, and I hope people don't think that's different. That's just something I do today. And then I saw Dan walking by the window, and he was coming from afar, and, and I was sitting there, I was kind of through the glass, 
and I saw this thing on his shirt said B-O-L-T, and I thought, hell, look at that badge. I thought, I don't know what, what he's into, but thank God I don't have to wear a badge that side. And, and it wasn't until later I could tell that it was a part of his shirt. But I... It's not a badge at all. It's a part of the shirt with the badge hung on top of it, and I thought, what a flyer on that. I wonder what he is in the comments. He's somebody real important. Uh, where to start? Expect a miracle, and I do. I know it's going to happen. I, I guess I quit expecting it's there. It's happening all the time. And what I pray for, for is, is the time, the patience, the understanding to see it. I don't always see it. Many miracles. This morning I got up. Last miracle, my wife's in bed with me. That's a miracle. This morning I got up, and when the first thing out of my wife's mouth was not... Where the hell have you been? <laughs> it's a miracle. This morning, I, I got up and I looked out and it was a good day. And I walked outside and thanked God for being alive. That's a miracle. Before I came down here, there was a little fella. He's five years old. Powerful miracle. Five years old. His name's Jesse. And I go where Jesse is every morning because Jesse's in the hospital where I am. And he's five years old. He's about this tall. And uh, when Jesse uh, got there, uh, he came in. The first thing he says, I'm not afraid of anything. I'm not afraid of you. I'll kick your butt. I'm tough. His <laughs> first words out of his mouth. I said, boy, it must be awful hard to be that little and to be that tough. And Jesse said, my dad's taught me to be tough. And my dad's taught me to be mean. My dad's taught me to never be afraid. And as he would cry and tell me this, little Jesse. I go over there Friday morning before I left to come over here. I go to that unit every morning because I think it's important for little kids like Jesse to have someone walk in every morning, same time, say hello and that they love them. And little Jesse's hugging on me and he sits down for a minute and he says, uh, I'm not very happy today. And I said, what you not happy about, Jesse? And he said, people don't love me. People don't love me. And I didn't know what to say to him. And I, and I said, Jesse, people love you. And he said, no, people don't love me. He said, you love me. You love me, but no one loves me. And I thought it hadn't been that long ago that I was in a treatment center, and I realized that not only did I not know how not to drink, I didn't know how to love myself, and I didn't know how to love other people, and I surely didn't know how to love a little five-year-old boy, because I had a four-year-old that I stayed away from. And I thought, those are the miracles that God gives back to me every day, day at a time. And, and I thought that I was real grateful for that, and I am today. And I wanted to share that kind of, those are the kind of miracles I get all the time, happen all the time, and I'm real glad for it. The big book says to share a little about what it was like, what happened and what it's like now. And what it was like is it was crazy. It was as crazy as anybody I have ever heard describe it. It was as crazy as anything I've ever studied in the textbook. It's so crazy that I know I can write a book about it and become famous at some point in time when I get ready to slow down and retire a little bit because it was just insane. It was totally insane. It reminded just totally craziness. And I have a brother who's 17 months younger than I am. His name's Mike. He's at large today. He may be at large today. He may not be because he comes in and out and he hasn't been able to quite get a hold of it long enough to hang on yet. But he's trying, and he still knows that there's a place called AA, and there's people in Al-Anon who love him, and he's doing better at times, and he's doing worse at times. But we grew up together, and it reminded me of the story I heard of these two little boys, 
and these two little boys that I heard about, Mike, Pat and Mike, and they were just crazier than hell, to put it bluntly, and drove their mother crazy. And I can identify with that because we drove our mother crazy, and we drove other people around us crazy. And she was always wondering, what am I going to do with Pat and Mike? What am I going to do with Pat and Mike? And there was a new preacher in town. He was a Catholic priest, really. I'm a Southern Baptist, so we called them preachers. But he was a Catholic <laughs> priest. Uh, <laughs> He was a Catholic priest, and she thought, I know, I'll take him down to see the Catholic priest. The Catholic priest is new in town. The boys don't know him. There'll be some shock value there, and he'll be able to get them on the right path. So she got Pat and Mike, and she said, get dressed. And that's what a good Al-Anon who isn't in recovery yet does. They make sure you're dressed up just right. They make sure everything's combed, that your tie's done, that everything's straightened up, because you've got to look nice before you can go tell somebody that you're totally out of control. You've got to look like this. <laughs> we got to go up here and see this priest and tell him that all heck has broke loose and we can't control it anymore, but we got to look like it's together. We don't want him to think too bad of us. So she gets Pat and Mike all dressed up and she takes them to that priest and they sit out in that little aisle out there and she goes in and, and Pat looks at Mike and he says, what, what do you think is going on? He says, well, I don't know. There's some kind of big trouble going on. And so in a minute, Mom comes out and she looks at Pat, the oldest, and, and she looks at him and says, the priest wants to see you. And he goes in and he talks to the priest and in a minute he comes out and his eyes are about this big around. He just sits down in that chair and Mike goes, oh no, and she goes, Mike, you go see the priest. And Mike goes in and he sits down and he looks at that priest like this and that priest lays his hands out on that big desk and he says, Mike, where is God? And Mike just sits there and his eyes get big and he starts shifting around and the priest says, where is God? And Mike just jumped up, ran outside, grabbed Pat, and said, come on, and they took off running home as fast as they could, and Pat's run along behind him. They run upstairs, get in the closet, and Mike closed the closet door, Pat says, what's wrong? And Mike says, the priest says it's God's missing, and they think we took him. <laughs> I always felt like something was missing and I always felt like you felt like that I took it. That's kind of sums it up. But I grew up in a, a place over in uh, eastern Oklahoma on a, on a farm and on a ranch and I grew up and I, we grew up in a family of alcoholism. We grew up with a lot of things that families grow up with. And quite simply what happened was that certain things were real important that I remember. I, 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 uh, Scott talked a little bit about that in the big book says that the primary reason men drank alcohol primarily for the effect. And that's what I do. The effect of alcohol for me was that I didn't have to feel anything. It wasn't what it made me feel, I didn't have to feel nothing. And when that little voice would start creeping up in my head that I felt something, talking to me about what I felt, I could quieten it up by drinking. It's that simple. And from an early age, I felt like I didn't belong. I felt like I, I didn't belong. I felt like I wasn't as good as you are. I felt like I wasn't as smart as you were. I felt like what I said wasn't as important as what she said. I felt like I didn't look like you thought I should look. I did, just didn't fit in. I felt different. And I felt real different. I, I felt so different that I felt for sure that you wouldn't want me around. I felt for sure that if you stopped long enough to get to talk to me or if you knew me, that you wouldn't want me and you wouldn't have anything to do with me. And so based on how I felt long before I started drinking, I started doing other things and I started lying. I felt like that I could tell you what you wanted and you would appreciate me more. And so I, I long before I started drinking, I started figuring you out. And I felt like that if I could do that, I would fit in and it didn't work. And I can remember that as time went on and I grew up, uh, got older, I was 16 and I was at a drive-in movie with a gal one night 
and, and we were sitting there. And my brother and I, when we were little, made a pact. We lived with this alcoholic, and we made a pact that we'd never drink like that. We'd never do that. We'd never drink and act like he acted. And that was the pact we made. And sitting at that drive-in movie that night, the girl looked over at me and she said, do you want a beer? And I said, well, sure. And uh, I was somewhat a little uh, afraid, but I had a friend who had drank some beer prior to me ever drinking it, and he told me it tasted terrible, but if you held your nose, for some reason you wouldn't taste it. So I got the beer, stepped out of the car at the drive-in movie, and kind of helped my nose and turned it up and drank it real fast, and nothing happened. And I leaned back in the car and said, you have another beer? And she said, yes. And I drank another one, and I didn't hold my nose that time, and nothing really happened, and I got another one. And what did happen was I began to realize later something I didn't know then. I never drank for a drink. I drank to get drunk. I never said to you, let's go have a drink. I said, let's go get drunk. Now that's how I talked. And that night, I drank as much of it as she had in that purse, until we went and got some more and drank as much of it as we could drink. And going home that night, I felt good. I didn't feel. And the moon was out and I had my car stereo up and I didn't feel anymore. And I thought to myself, as soon as I can get my hands on that stuff, I'm gonna do it again. And there it was. That's the obsession. Not for me, the obsession was not, hell, I never wanted to drink normally. <coughs> I wanted to get drunk. I never left home in the later stages of my alcoholism to the newcomer thinking, uh, I'm not going to get drunk tonight. I left home thinking, I hope I come home. I knew I was going to get drunk. That's why I started drinking. I never went sat down to have one drink. Didn't want one drink. I wanted to get drunk because I didn't want to feel. And that's how I drink when I drink. I drink full bore. I drink until I can't drink no more. And it's been that way from the beginning. When I left home later on under the guise of going to college, I did, I left home under the guise of going to college because at college I could be away from home, but the most important thing about college was I could drink as much as I wanted, as often as I wanted to, and nobody would have to tell me I couldn't. And that's why I went. I went home under the guise of going to college, flunked out of college. I, later on I had to get my transcript uh, a few years ago from my college, I thought, well, surely I've got some credits. I went two or three years. <laughs> and what I realized was I hung out around colleges. And on my transcript, after hanging out around colleges for about three years, I think I had half a credit in American history. And that was it. Nothing else. And I looked at that and I thought, I'm going to keep that. I've still got it. I've got it right in my little file at home because I can go to it and lay it down today. And there is where I go when I drink. And I lay the other one that I've got down next to it. There's where I go when I turn my will and my life over to care of God as I understand him. And I do, to the best of my ability, what's in the big book by Alcoholics Anonymous. And I'm going to tell you, they're grossly different, as we all know in this room. They're grossly different. But at that point in time, I left, and I got in trouble immediately. And I, I have always been the one who got caught. And I have always been the one who is just right on the cusp of trouble. And I got in trouble drinking immediately. And, and doing the other things that with my addictions and the next thing you know I'm in the county jail and I'm looking at 10 to 20 or 10 to 12 years and my parents are trying to get me out of there and, and they're telling me uh, you, you've got to not do this again they're going to uh, uh, 
send you away. You're going to be in big trouble. My mom is, is making sure I have a new suit to wear for I look good everywhere I go. Uh, I've got a haircut, and, uh, and everybody's real concerned, and they're loving me the best way they know how. And what I'm learning is, ah, big trouble equals rescue. Little trouble equals you do it yourself. And that's what I learned that day. When I stood there and looked at a, uh, a man's hands reach across and, and lay the bail money out that day, I thought, you know, if I really get into a lot of trouble, they don't mean what they say, that they'll never get me out. They'll get me out. And I learned that, and it propelled me forward. The process of enabling propelled. For the newcomer in Alcoholics Anonymous and, and Al-Anon too, the process of enabling kills people. And it kills those that are lucky rapidly, I believe. And it kills those who aren't lucky slowly over time. And it kills you in spirit as well as it kills you physically. It kills you as well as it kills those around you. And it kills us all, little by little. And so people that I talk with today, I talk about not enabling. If you're going to do the deal, do the deal and pay up. Because I believe that that has the best chance of turning our head or turning our path. I believe that. I believe that because it talks about that in the stuff that I study and the stuff that I read. I believe that's hard for us to do, but I believe it. I was propelled on and I decided that rather than do anything else and just try to stay out of jail that the army needed a few good men and I was a good man so I propelled myself right into the army and the army is a great place for a practicing alcoholic to be because the booze is cheap and when you're not doing your army stuff, whatever that happens to be, then you can drink. Or if you're pretty sharp, you can drink and do your army stuff too. The only thing is if you get caught drinking while you're doing your army stuff, the army gets all uh, out, been out of shape about it, and you wind up in front of some general or some colonel, and he's talking to you, and there's a disciplinary process that goes through. And, and it's just, a, to me at that point in time, it was just a, a very vivid, realistic, explanation of just how stupid the army really was because they didn't understand me. They didn't understand me and their, their thoughts about living and how you were supposed to act didn't make any sense to me. You know, their thoughts about living at that point in time and how you were supposed to act reminded me of my father's thoughts about living. You know, be honest, work hard, take care of your business, pay your debts, be a good man. And those were foreign concepts to me. And I think they were foreign because I didn't know how to do any of them. And I knew how to do this other thing when I drank. And so it was uh, a, a natural course of events that after being in the Army for about two years and 10 months and 14 days drinking whiskey and becoming addicted to other drugs, I was kicked out of the Army. And I can remember when I got kicked out of the army, I thought, good, good. I came in here with nothing. I leave with nothing. I don't need you. You don't need me. What do I need? Anything you have to offer. And I remember that's what I told myself, but I felt different. And I left there, and from there it was just one thing after another. One thing after another. I got kicked out of the army and I uh, went to Alaska, back and forth between Alaska and Oklahoma. I drank a lot, I used a lot, things got worse, systems got crazier, families got crazier. My dad and I got to the point to where when I would walk into a room, my father would look up and he would say, shit. 
That's all he would say. <laughs> wouldn't say anything else. He'd just look at me and flatly, and, and he wouldn't say it in a, a bad, loud way. He would just look at me and say, shit. That, that does a lot for your self-esteem as you're trying to solve. I know now being a little more educated in the psychological aspects of things that he was trying to share his discontent with me that he was really trying to communicate positively he just didn't know how but that's what he would say that's what he would say and it's funny and it's sad and the saddest thing about it was it started a course of time of many years between my father and I. And this was the man who came along and rescued our family from the active alcoholic. This was the man who came along to a woman and three kids who lived in a little four-room house across a field from my grandfather and rode his horse over there every day and bought us, my brother and I, little cowboy boots and gave us horses to ride and things to do. This is the man who worked hard for us to have what we had. This is the man who pulled us or tried to pull us out of this stuff and didn't realize he got sucked into it in the process. This is the man who loved us so much that he didn't know how to tell us that. This is a man who did those things that he and I set a course to where we just didn't talk. And when I would walk into a room and sit down next to him, he would ignore me and I would ignore him. And we didn't talk. For years we didn't talk. And he was so proud, and I was so sick and proud. That pride that the AA talks about, that we just butted heads like this. And it was, no, I'm right, no, I am. And it's this way. And my mother's running around trying to fix it all. And she's meeting us at places and telling us when we come around, please look good. She's meeting us at places and giving us money. And they're doing this. And the whole family just gets sicker and sicker. And you know... It's good that today I can remember kneeling down in my dad's uh, hall to his horse barn after I had been in the program about a year when I pulled up and to see him and he had his friends around him. And for the first time, my dad and I were really able to joke with one another because I had a pair of shorts on. And my dad's a real cowboy. I'm telling you, he's got a cowboy hat. He's got ranger. I mean, he glows in the dark. He's so white because he wears long sleeve everything. And I had a pair of shorts on, and he was always, there's nothing more disgusting than a pair of hairy legs. And I thought, well, what are you going to do with them? I mean, they're there. And I knelt down, and his friends were there. And I can remember I said to Dad jokingly, Dad, go ahead and chew on my butt about these shorts, and then we'll get it over with and go on. And he laughed. Never said anything else about my short pants. I can remember this is the same dad who had a group with some people around him later on. I'd been uh, in the program two years, maybe three years. He sat around looked up across the yard with some of his friends around. These are his friends, the old cowboy friends. And he says, did I ever tell you I loved you? And I said, no. And he said he loved me. Same guy. Same guy. And I think what had happened between looking up at me and saying, shit, and looking up at me and saying, did I ever tell you I loved you, was Alcoholics Anonymous and the 12 Steps was Al-Anon and people getting involved, was people working real hard every day not to read and not to talk about, but just trying the best we can, as it says in step six, to live 24 hours a day, one day at a time, what's written down in that book. That's all it is. Not what we know is written down in the book, living what's written down in the book the best you can. That's what it was about. And that turned things. That began to turn things. I uh, continued to drink a little bit, continued to drink a lot, 
and I decided that what I needed was a uh, wife. I decided that what set me apart from the guys I was flying out in California out there and what set me apart from those guys, we flew cotton all night, sprayed out there at night, and uh, was that we'd go into the bar after we quit flying about 7 o'clock in the morning. They'd drink a little bit and go home. I'd stay and keep drinking until about 1 or 2, and then I'd have to go to sleep. We started flying again about 6.30 or 7 that night. And that's a, it is a bad place to sweat off a hangover, I'm going to tell you right now. A lot, and, and I've said that very same thing. Boy, I'm going to tell you what, that, that'll never happen again. That's it. I'm, and then I get to feeling better. My hair gets a little curlier along about, you know, four or five hours later. And I go to thinking, well, one, you know, well, I'll just do a little bit. And then the next thing I know, hell, let's just get drunk, party, have a good time. It'll be okay. Because I'm so great that I'll be able to get back in that thing in the morning, travel across the ground while I carry about five tons with me, four foot off, and laugh at people because I'm great. I mean, you know, you can't hurt me. People used to tell me, don't drink like that and fly, you're going to kill yourself. And I would look at them just as calmly and say, I don't have time to die. I will die later. Now, is that not insane? <laughs> that still sends a chill up my neck. And I would say that. I don't have time to die. I used to stand out in the field by myself and drink because I was alone and I was lonely and I didn't know what to do. And I used to blame God and I used to look to the sky and I used to say, to hell with God. There is no God. It's me and what I can do. And I wasn't raised that way. The sickness of alcohol and the sickness of alcoholism propelled me to that place. I wasn't raised like that. You know, today I know there is a God, and he's in his place, and I'm in mine, and I know that he loves me, and I know that he must have looked at me during those times just like I had looked at my daughter sometimes in recovery and shook my head, his head and smiled and said, that's okay. There's things for you to do. There's still things for you to do. And I couldn't have believed it then. And when I first came into this program, I didn't believe a person like that existed that could look at me and shake their head and say, it's all right. There's things yet for you to do. There's people yet for you to hear. And it's all right. I didn't know things like that could happen. And I was propelled along and I got married to my daughter's mother, my wife. And uh, I would like to say that that outdoor wedding in California spawned the perfect marriage. I'd like to say that the outdoor wedding in California that there's a lot of pictures of somewhere was the beginning of something great. But the truth is the outdoor wedding in California had a young woman who had been lied to and who was looking forward to those things and it had a guy who was drunk and doesn't remember it. And all it spawned really was somebody to be home for me not to come home to anymore. That's all. All it spawned was somebody to be home for me to come home and fight with when I did come home. All it spawned was just somebody else pulled in, brought in, involved in all the sickness, and somebody else to get real sick. That's all it involved. And it was that way. And to try to make it better, I had another idea, and my other idea was, well, if we have a child, a child will make it better. Because people who are doing okay seem to have a kid, too. Not only are they married, they have a kid, too. So we will do that. And shortly thereafter, my daughter Katie was born. Now, my daughter Katie is sits here today. 
and my daughter Katie is literally the light of my eye today. My daughter Katie I love, and my daughter Katie loves me. But it wasn't always that way. I would like to say that when my daughter Katie was born, it was a glorious event, that I was propelled into fatherhood, that the heap of responsibility fell on me, that I shouldered the burden and I took off forward like a good man should. But it wasn't that way. When my daughter Katie was born, I was eating Valiums till my tongue turned blue up there in that hospital because you couldn't drink in that labor and delivery room. And when she was born, as soon as we got her out of there, I went down to the bar and stayed there until it closed down and I don't remember where I went from there. And I stayed drunk. And my daughter Katie was something that I would put in my hip pocket during her infancy because she looked real good. And she was something that I could look at and say, see, I'm not doing so bad. Look how good we look. And I could work real hard and people could look at my daughter Katie that I took around with me and they could say, what a great guy he is. That's what my daughter Katie was. And she would stand up there in that pickup truck with me when we lived down here at Randallette and I'd go out there and check those wheat fields that I'd just flown to see if I'd kill those green bugs. And my daughter Katie would get down out of that truck and I'd go out there and look for those bugs and I'd get back in and she'd get up there with me and she'd ride around and she did that and I enjoyed that. I enjoyed having her around for what it did. And I'd like to say honestly that I enjoyed having her around because of who she was, but I enjoyed having her around because what it made me look like. And I did that until I pulled in to a little quick store over there around Walters one day because I wanted a six-pack of beer. And I took Katie in there with me and she was about four years old. And I got that six-pack of beer and she wanted a strawberry pop. And when I turned around, she was looking at me and she said, Daddy, you know Mama doesn't want you to drink. And right there, the light bulb went on, and I thought, you won't go with me anymore. That's the end of our time together. Because when I drink, don't you dare tell me about my drinking. Because if you're a little girl that I love, or try to love, I'm going to leave you alone. And if you're a wife who cares about me, I'm going to hurt you with my words. And if you're a man, I'll hurt you some way. Don't you tell me about my I drink the way I want to drink, and I drink to get drunk, and no one's going to stop me. I drink because I want to. That's how I am, and I don't care who it hurts in the process. I think the greatest thing Alcoholics Anonymous has given me to the new people, if the new people here today are tired of hurting people, if you're tired of being, I call it disrespectful to people, if you're tired of treating people poorly, and if you live those 12 steps the best you can every day, you may hurt some people, but you won't hurt them like we hurt them when we're drinking booze. We mean to hurt them. That's how it keeps you away from me. I can shut you up. And I can shut you up. You get loud, I'll get louder. And I can shut you up. I can hurt you with what I say, and I don't want to do that. I'm not a kind of a guy who enjoys hurting people. And there's my daughter. And thank God today that my daughter has been given back to me. My daughter witnessed things in alcoholics, and it, it's a, such a sick family disease. You know, I, I can remember coming home one day in that arrogant roar that I used to come in with after I had drank, started drinking that morning. I drank all day. I drank beer all day long. I figured you could live on beer. Uh, I was convinced that it was liquid. I didn't have to stop meat. Uh, it had hops and barley in it. It was as good as those little mixed drinks, and I could live on that stuff. And you, you won't gain any weight. You won't have a solid bowel movement, but you can exist on it. I can tell you that. 
And it'll get you where you want to get. You have to start drinking it in the shower in the morning. I used to take a six-pack in there, and I'd pop about three of those cans and drink it, throw up right. Great place to throw up because you're in the shower anyway. And there's no nothing solid. It's all fluid because you've been drinking forever. And then by the time I got out of that house and started down to uh, where the farm was, I'd have had my six-pack in me, and I felt a little bit better. I'd start on the one I had behind the seat of that pickup truck, and I'd have a drink of it, and I'd have to pull over, stop, set that beer down, puke again, and I thought, God, that flu bug, got the flu bug. It's just creeping up on me. I've got to do something about it. But that's how I drank. I just drank from the time I started going until I couldn't drink anymore that night, every night. And I came home in that arrogance that I came home in one time, and, and there, there uh, in, in that little house we lived in, and I looked at, at Katie's mother, and I said, where's Katie? She said, she's playing. And I started through that house to find Katie, and I looked, and she wasn't playing out there in the living room. She wasn't playing in the bedroom. And for some reason, the closet to the door, or the door to the closet was cracked open a little bit. And I just walked over and opened that closet, and there sat Katie. And she was playing, and she looked up at me with fear in her eyes. And I said, what are you doing? And she said, I'm just playing, Daddy. And I said, well, come out here in the living room and play. And turned around and walked off. What kind of sickness fosters the kind of feeling and the kind of fear that makes a little girl want to play in the closet. You know, I talk to kids because that's what I do. And they'll all tell you how it feels in an alcoholic home. And how it feels is it feels tense, feels thick, and it feels like you can reach out and grab a hold of it and wring it out in the air. And Katie felt that at four years. She don't play in closets today. Before I came in here, Katie and I were standing... <laughs> I'm a rough, tough guy. I'm a two-fisted lover, drinker. I'll fight you. I don't care what the deal is. I've got scars on my nose all over me. I didn't win many fights, but I'll jump right in there with you. <laughs> Doesn't matter to me. I never fought to win anyway. I just fought to be fighting. We were standing out there. I used to drive around, drink beer with my redneck friends, point at guys who play golf, say, look at those guys. Look at those damn guys out there. What kind of person would be out there hitting a the golf ball around? Well, I had me another one of those beers. Now, I play, I play golf, okay? I wear a tie, drive a car, which I didn't do when I was drinking. I've got a daughter that I'm standing out here with before we go in. I'm standing there talking to her. She's kissing me on the cheek. I look over listening to her. Now, here's the Al-Anon in me. And without even thinking, I reach over and brush her cheek and say, Honey, your bass is a little heavy. <laughs> Must have been dark when you were putting that on this morning because you got your bass on just a little heavy. And then I thought, what, what have I become? I have become that which I used to point at in my sickness and laugh at. I have become the kind of guy through Alcoholics Anonymous and 12 Steps, the program, that I used to think was a weasel, was a lightweight, was a jerk, was a sissy. I have become that man. And I like that because I don't run from things like I did when I was a two-fisted fighter, lover, drinker, runner. Katie has, through the miracle of the program, is with me today. And I love her very much. And she's a good girl. And she's a smart girl. She takes after her father, but she takes after her mother. And you see, I was so sick that I didn't give her mother any credit for anything. And things don't survive always, and in my sickness, our marriage... To Katie's mother didn't survive. It didn't survive. It just didn't. And when I get up in the morning, somebody said, med talked about meditation, and, and I think it's important, as the program says, to get up in the morning and have your meditation time. 
and that was something that I was real uncomfortable with because I didn't know how to meditate and I was you had to do something but I understand now that it's just getting up and sitting down and listening you know listen for what God may have to say to you learn to listen and look or we stand a chance to miss it and in those mornings that I think about I think back on those I reflect where it was I reflect on the little girl in the closet I reflect on all the sickness I reflect on all the fights I reflect on all the broken promises. I reflect on looking at a person who cared about me saying, why are you letting them take my home? And I was looking right at them saying, they're not going to take this home. All the while knowing they're taking it. I reflect back on what the disease of alcoholism, when it's active, how it hurts me and how it hurts those I love and how there's nothing I can do about it and how I don't even know it's going on while it's going on. I reflect back. And then I thank God for what I have today. And I, and I ask God for the chance. And if it comes, it's all right. And things went on. Things got sicker. I told you a little bit about that I fly. I always, when I drank, had this deal in my head. I never flew drunk. And what that meant was really was that I never really took a drink in the plane with me when I was flying. <laughs> That's what it meant because as Scott described it, there's that little zone somewhere between when you are drinking and before you sober up. And I, and I always call that just uh, drunk as a skunk, that zone. And some, somewhere in there I would get in those planes. And I can remember that in the end of my drinking and during those last days that were, were, were very lonely and very dark, uh, I would get ready to, to take off in the morning. I was down here uh, towards the border. Uh, we were I was out west, and I remember that the sun would be starting to come up on a beautiful day. I would be telling myself how great I was, and I'd get ready to get in that plane and sitting there running, warming up, and I would get afraid. I would get very afraid. And I began to have thoughts of, uh, you're going to kill yourself today. Today's the day you're going to kill yourself. And I never had those thoughts before. And I began to be afraid. And the loader would be standing there. He'd be pumping that poison in that plane. And, and I would say, just a minute. And I always parked my pickup around behind the hangar. And I would run around there. And sometimes I would just walk up to the building and I would just almost yell at myself to get it together. Sometimes I would reach in that pickup and down a beer real fast to get it together. And then I'd go back in that airplane and sit down and I would tell myself, you don't have time to die today. And that's how afraid I got. I got afraid. And I remember getting a call on a Sunday and they wanted me to do some flying. And I can remember I was drinking. I was drinking a lot. had been on a four or five day drunk. And I told the guy that I didn't have any chemical and that we couldn't fly that for him. And he told me that if we didn't fly it, he'd get the other person too. And I thought to myself, you know, as great as you are, even as impaired as you are, and I acknowledged I was impaired, you can fly it high, fly light loads, and you fly it. And I went down there and got in a plane, and I took the beer with me. And the next thing I know, it was a couple hours later, drinker, that plane was running outside, the and the phone was ringing. It was obvious what had happened. There was a drunk man flying an airplane. And I thought to myself, I am going to die. And I call my mother. You know, I'm only 30 years old. Who better to call when you get in trouble than your mother? <laughs> and I call my mom, and I asked my mom. I said I need some help, and and I, I I 
remember saying to her something, don't you have that stud barn, and if you have to, put me in there and lock me up, right? Because I can't quit drinking. And I went down and spent the night with my mother, and of course she was primed for this at this point in time. She had been, she had been praying to God, deliver him to me and I will fix him. And I had been delivered to her and she was primed for this and she got on the phone. I told her, I said, I've got to go to Longview, Texas to do some stuff on some uh, corn. And uh, I'll, I've got to go. I've just got to go, Mom, and I'll be back on Tuesday or Wednesday. And if you'll get it set up, I'll go into a treatment center. And lo and behold, she did. And, of course, she got it set up. She had it set up. And when I got back, she took me to the treatment center. And before she did, she stopped, of course, to make sure I had a haircut because you have to look nice. Before you <laughs> and, and, and she... Uh, she made sure I was dressed and starched and everything because you have to look good before you go to a place to admit you're totally out of control. And, and, and they want to know who you, you know, of course, who we are. We're important people. Now remember that we're important people and, and don't, and you go up there and listen to them. And I went into a treatment center and I'd like to say that I went into a treatment center on the 29th of March, uh, 1984 to not drink anymore, but that's not what I went there for. I went in there to lay up, lick my wounds and get myself together. That's what I was already thinking a few days after that Sunday. And I can remember they put me in that uh, treatment center with another guy laying there, and he and I talked, and I would say things like to him, are, are you serious about not going to use any more uh, alcohol? Are you serious about not going to drink? And he'd say, well, I don't know. Are you? And I'd say, I don't think so. I don't think so. And I stayed in that detox room, and I'd stick my head out like a little rat and look down the hall, and there'd be all these people down there, and they'd be going, come on. And I thought, what kind of people are those? And I don't want to have anything to do with them. And then I was drawn up in a knot about AA to begin with because the year almost to the date, in 1983, I had gone to AA. I needed to get some money borrowed and somebody had told me that Katie's mother was always telling me, you're drinking too much, you're drinking too much, you've got to get some help, you've got to get some help. And I was, to get her off my back, I said, okay, okay. Call this number. So I called a place, it was a shit place, and I called the shit program of recovery or something, located in Miami, Oklahoma, and I called them to get some help. And I can remember, I talked to this guy, he seemed pleasant enough, and, and when I talked to him, he said, how much you drank? I told him about a third of what I normally drank. He said, well, that is a problem. He said, well, why don't you come on up and we can check you into our place and we can, can get you better. And I said, well, tell me a little bit about this program you've got up there. He said, it's real simple. We come in, we use aversive therapy. He said, what we do is we will give you a pill. You will take this pill. You'll be able to drink whatever you want to drink. When you drink it, you will get sick and throw up. And when you throw up, your body will become naturally averse to alcohol and the principles of learning. And because of that, you'll stop drinking. And I said, thanks, buddy. I don't need you. Hung up, turned around and told my wife, I'm taking the cure. I'm throwing up every morning already. I don't need to go up there. All I need to do... I thought all I need to do is just keep drinking. It's going to happen to me if I just keep on drinking. But that didn't work, so I called the intergroup office uh, up in uh, Tulsa because I had to find an AA meeting. And I had to find not just any AA meeting. I had to find an AA meeting that was around nobody who might know me because you know how important I am. I'm so important, I can't be going to an alcoholic science meeting with people who might see me. So I called the intergroup office. I called, oh, I take that back. I had Katie's mother call, the, the, the Al-Anon call the intergroup office. She called a guy named Harold, answered the phone over and talked. She says, my husband needs to talk to somebody, about, or my husband drinks too much, he needs information on going to a meeting. Harold says, and have him call me and hung up on her. <laughs> she turns around and she says to me, he hung up on me. 
I said, how dare he? And I called him and I said, hey, fella, I want some information on this Alcoholics Anonymous thing. I need a meeting. He says, are you drinking today? I had been, but of course, what did I tell him? No. Of course not. It's Sunday. I'm not drinking yet. He says, well, there are meetings about a mile from your house. I said, no, nope, can't do that. A meeting over in West Tulsa. It's way over in West Tulsa now. And I said, that's fine with me. West Tulsa's fine. I used to run around over there to those old bars, and so I knew it a little bit. And he said, it's called the West Side Group. And he said, you can go a little low. And if I'd have known the nature of the group, I never would. So I go to the West Side Group in Tulsa when I get, get ready to do my smooths on you people. And I dressed up as nice as I could dress up. And I go in there just as nice as I can go in there. And I'm sweating. I mean, sweat's pouring down me. And I've got a coat on. It's in, uh, in March. And I walk in and I meet a guy named Jerry. And Jerry comes up and shakes my hand and says, Hi, good to see you. Great to see you. Da -da 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 -da. Look at these people. All of them are playing like they're happy, every one of them. Every one of them are laughing like you folks. They're playing like you're happy. And I know how you really feel because I feel that way too. And I can remember Jerry tried to help me out. And we went to springtime in the Ozarks. I thought, well, that'll be good. That'll be good for this long. If I go up there to that AA conference, I know I'll get the money. And I went up there and I ate bad time and I couldn't stand it. I was miserable. I wanted to get back down there and away from you. And when I got there in 84, and I can remember Jerry walked straight up to me and he shook my hand in my drunkenness. <laughs> you can drink in an AA meeting, but don't talk <laughs> if you're drunk. Because they will not throw you out, they escort you out, two of them usually, one on each side. So let's step outside and visit for a minute. And that's what had happened to me earlier. But you know, they didn't look at me and do what I thought they were going to do. They didn't look at me and say, where have you been? You've been drunk again, haven't you, the whole time we've been sober. You didn't do anything we said, did you? They said, guy, we're glad you're back. And that's how it started. That's how it started for me. And I think it started me on the path of just more than ever imagined. I, I didn't have an opportunity to, to select a sponsor when I got into AA. I was given one. I was given a sponsor, and here's how it was. His, there he is. His name's Leo. He's your sponsor. When we go to a meeting, you go to this meeting, this meeting, this meeting, this meeting, and every time you sit in this place. And I can remember old Leo. And Leo, one of the first things he told me was, and I knew I was going to like him immediately. <laughs> he said, you're a smart man, aren't you, kid? I said, smart? He said, you do pretty good. You, yeah, I, I hear you fly. You fly smart. But I can do something you can do. And I said, what's that? He said, you don't know how. And I thought, I don't like that old man. <laughs> and he would say things to me like, stay green and grow, kid. And he would say things to me like when I started in there in March and along about August, Katie's birthday was coming up and I, it was on a Sunday. And I can remember being at that Sunday morning meeting downtown with Leo where he sat at the end. And we sat there and he would finally let me eat a donut after a while out of his pile. He was kind of, he was tough about those donuts. <laughs> he didn't like to share them too much. And... Uh, he said, tonight there will be a speaker that I want you to hear down at the 12 and 12. And I said to Leo, uh, I can't be there. My daughter's got a birthday party. I've got to go tonight. And he turned around as quick and he said, where were you? And I said, well, Leo, I was laid up drunk. And he said, and you come down to that meeting tonight. And I thought, huh. You know, Leo's the one that would look at me and say things like, it's not what's in there. And it's not what's in there that you take to a meeting. He said, that's easy. It's what's in there 
that you take off and do by yourself. It's not what's in there that you stand in front of people and talk about do. It's when you're there by yourself and it's hard. I couldn't understand him. And I remember driving home from a meeting one night and there was a little bar there called The Hut. And I'd just come from an AA meeting. And I can remember thinking to myself, I'm going to whip in there, have me a few drinks, no one will know it. No one will know it. And then I'll go on home. And a little voice for the first time in my entire recollection said, but you will know it. And for the first time what I thought was important. And always before it was what you And today what I think is important. And that's a gift that was given to me. Leo told me, he said, you got to have a job. It's wintertime coming up. And I told him I didn't want a job. That I was a farmer. I flew airplanes. I was an important person. And in the, in the wintertime, farmers who are important don't do anything. You just kind of hang out, talk to other farmers, <laughs> grease combines, you know, do kind of nothing. Because it's wintertime. He said, you need to learn to work. And he said, I have a friend of mine who, has a, uh, who runs the laundry at the Sheridan Hotel at the airport. And I'm just in awe. I'm thinking, what in the world? And he says, they are hiring some people. He said, Monday morning, they're having interviews. You be there. You interview for a job in that laundry. And I, to, to the newcomers, some of the people that I work with early on say the magic word that Scott was talking about, why? And, and you know, I didn't know you could say that early on. That's how sick I was. I thought, well, if somebody like that tells you to do it, then you just have to complain and gripe and go ahead and do it. I didn't know that we really had a choice at that matter. And I think that that saved me a lot because I had always asked why. You know, and I said, you want me to work in a laundry, Leo? I'm an important person. He goes, go down there and interview so I said, all right. And I can remember going down there and it was snow. And I can remember there was just a light snow. And I walked in and I sat on the back and I sat with one lady on one side of me, one lady on the other side. And this lady over here talked incessantly, just continued to just chatter all day <laughs> about nothing. And this lady over here talked about the problems she was having in her entire life. And I'm stuck in the middle of them and I'm thinking to myself, what in the world am I doing here? And I sat there from that 8 o'clock that morning. They didn't give us a break. That room full of people didn't get a break for lunch. We sat there. And we sat until 4 o'clock that afternoon. And I sat between those two people. And I was miserable. And then I thought, wow, what a place to learn. Wow. I thought, God has just given me an opportunity to learn true patience. And, true. and that's what I looked at a lot. And it wasn't so bad until the guy walked in and said, we've got all the people that we need. We're not interviewing anymore. You people can go home. And I walked up to that man and I said, pardon me, sir, but I came down here to interview. I've sat here since 8 o'clock this morning. Somebody should. I said, to just walk in and say that isn't nice. And he said, we have all the people we need. And I said, I, well, you don't understand. I came down here at 8 o'clock this morning. I've been sitting here learning lessons of God, which I didn't tell him. <laughs> but somebody should talk to me. And he said, just a minute. What's your name? And I told him, and he left, came back with a piece of paper. I found out and said, Mr. Christensen, we don't need any more people. And I said, thank you. And I left. <laughs> because in the big book, it says something else. It says to practice love, practice tolerance and patience. But it says you stand on your own two feet and you look people. It doesn't mean you have to be rude to them either but it doesn't mean you have to be walked over or misused. And I believe it's important 
for me not to be walked over. Because when I let you walk over and misuse me, then I am more apt to treat you meanly. I'm more apt to practice my speech. And I think that I should seek wisdom and guidance from people who have been there before me, but I should run things by them, which I still do. Because I have a tendency to believe that. You know, today I'm fortunate enough to be in a position to where people ask me what to do about things that have a big impact on people's lives. And you know, I sit in my office sometimes with my door closed, and you know what I think? I think to myself, you know, you really don't know what's going on here. (laughs) And they're going to find out that you really don't know what's going on. And when they do, all hell's going to break loose. You're going to be in trouble, just like that little boy at the start. I think that still sometimes. And then I snap and I say, wait a minute, I do know what's going on here. And what I don't know, I know who to talk to. I know. I didn't get that job, but I got another job. I got a job that taught me one of the most important lessons in life. It taught me a lot about humility and it taught me about what the, you hear around conferences are people of the world, world people or whatever they are, who aren't in the program. And this man that I got a job from was not in the program. His name was Mr. Carey. And he lived in a, little, in a house that we rented a little house from. And Mr. Carey was a carpenter. And I went over to Mr. Carey's house and I was visiting with him and he said, you can work for me. And I said, Mr. Carey, I don't know nothing about being a carpenter. And he said, I will teach you. And he turned around and went out to his shed and gave me a pair of overalls. It's a weird story. But anyway, I still got those overalls. And he said, you wear these tomorrow, you come to work with me. And I went to, over there the next morning with Mr. Carey. And Mr. Carey went back out. He was an older man. And he walked over to his workbench and he opened up a little box. And he opened this thing out of the little box and he unwrapped it. And he turned around with a little hammer like this. And he said, this is the framing hammer that I use. And see, I didn't understand how important that was. And I said, okay. And I took the hammer and I used it. And Mr. Carey taught me many things. Mr. Carey taught me how to be a good person and to take pride in what I did. Mr. Carey taught me how to work at something I knew nothing about. And Mr. Carey taught me how to take something and turn around and look at it when you're done and feel like you've done something that has been touched some way by somebody else. And I didn't know things like that. Mr. Carey taught me that. And then I find myself off down in Texas. This other miracles happen. And before you know it, I'm not farming anymore. And I'm sitting in treatment centers talking to people about staying sober. And people say, how did you get from that point to this point? And I said, I don't know. But I know that as I came through here, I stopped in Louisville. And Louisville was a place I stopped because Louisville had a meeting there. And I know that if I got in trouble, I could go back to that meeting. And I worked there at that Westgate place. And I learned things there. And then the next thing I know, other miracles happen, and I'm over in Fort Smith. And I get to Fort Smith, and that's where one of the greatest miracles in my life happened. That's where I met my wife. And I met my wife through the program, really. I met my wife because she wanted somebody to talk about drugs and alcohol to her class. She's a high school teacher. And so I went out to that class to talk to him, and that's where I met her. And she was friendly, and she was kind, and believe it or not, she comes from a world that I didn't come from. You know, this morning she was sitting there after listening to the talks, and she was sitting in bed, and Connie said to me, you know, I hear you and I hear other people say that when they were growing up they felt different, that they felt like they didn't fit. And she said, I never felt that way. I always felt loved and I always felt like I fit 
And, and I told her, you're fortunate because you never grew up in alcoholism. The lucky thing for me is that Connie thinks like we think and act when we work those 12 steps. The lucky thing for me is Connie loves like we love and act when, and that's real lucky. The lucky thing for me is my wife has never in my active disease of alcohol. That's the lucky thing. And we have a good life. And she's right the majority of the time. <laughs> and if you don't believe me, ask her. <laughs> oh, just so much. Uh, let me tell you a little bit about what it's like now. I never started out to be here. I, I was a farmer and flew airplanes. I never started out to do anything different. And now uh, what happened through staying sober and working these steps was that uh, I decided uh, I needed to go to college because I had never been and that if I went to school maybe I could do other things and help in other ways. And maybe I could take things that you taught me into another arena. You know, I was the doctor you all talked to. I am the doctor you all talked to. The only thing is, I don't twiddle the paper clip today like he did in his... I would have if I'd have been drinking. But, well, I never was the doctor that he talked to when I was drinking. But what I do is, is I look and I say, you need to go. I can't help you. You know, if couples come to me and there's active alcoholism, I don't mind. I, I say, I can't help you. There's nothing I can do to help you. You've got to, one, quit drinking and go to Alcoholics Anonymous. You've got to, two, go to Al-Anon. And when you do that, come back and we'll talk about something because I can't help you. But, I, but what I decided and, and got into school, and I didn't have much time, and so another miracle happened. I was able to get into school, and I went down uh, and told this uh, uh, counselor who was going to enroll me. I said, look, I'm, uh, I'm thir 35 years old. I don't have much time. I need to go to school. And she said, okay, we'll enroll you. Let's see. You haven't been in school very long. You have a high school transcript here. Cause I didn't let her see that college transcript. Because uh, I didn't want her to know how great I had succeeded early on in life. <laughs> and so... Uh, she said, you can take about 10 or 12 hours. We'll start you back in. You're a non-traditional student. And I said, you don't understand. I don't have any time. I need to hurry up here. I said, uh, how many can I take? And she said, well, I don't know. You could. And I said, I've got figured out where I can take about 21 hours here this first semester. And she says, you can't do that. I said, why? See, I'm the other person when people say, you can't do that. I always go, why not? Well, because it's never been done. Well, so let's try it. That's what IA said. Give it a shot. It'll either work out or it won't work out. It's not going to offend me if it doesn't work out. I'm not a failure if it doesn't work out, but I'm going to try to. She said, well, okay, give it a shot. But it's against my advice. Well, I took 21 hours. And in the summer, I took another 21 or 22 hours. And then the next semester, I took another 21 hours. And by the end of the first year, I had my Associates of Arts degree. And I then figured out and talked to a guy over there who let me do the same thing in another school. And by the end of the two and a half years, I had my BA. And I thought, I'm moving now. I can really catch up. I'm making up for some more time. don't have much time, I've got to keep going. Praying to God, God's will be done. And I mean, we're on a path here. And then I thought, I've got to go to graduate school. I've got to get my PhD because I've got to have that to do what I want to do. It seems like in the plan that it was just sort of unfolded in front of me that was an integral part to it. So I went and talked to people who knew more than me. And they said, you need to send out 15, 20 applications to these schools because there are two to 300 people apply for these doctoral programs and they take four to five every year. So the hardest thing is getting in. Send out all these applications. And I said, but I can't. 
They said, why? I said, because I live here, I've got a wife here, I've got a family here, and there's only four schools within a hundred miles radius that I can consider going to. So I'm going to send out four. And they said, oh, don't do that, send out more. And I said, nope, that's it. And if it's God's will, I'll get one of them. And I did. Next thing you know, I'm in there, and I'm going along. And all I did was show up every day and work every day and practice to the best of my abilities every day the principles outlined in the 12th step by Alcoholics Anonymous, and it worked out. I can't tell you how it did. It worked out when it shouldn't have worked out. I mean, it shouldn't have worked out. And it worked out. And in 1996, I'd completed my residence or intern. I had uh, defended my dissertation, and I had been licensed all in a week's time. And there's a law over there in that state that says you have to have your degree awarded before you can get licensed, and I got licensed three months before my degree was awarded. Now, I don't know how that happened, but all I did was talk to people. And now I get the privilege of working with young people and families. I get the privilege of being what I consider in our profession, and I'm a clinical psychologist. My specialty is child and adolescent and addictive disorders, and our profession is a good profession but it's full of people who, as John the Indian said, are educated well beyond their intelligence. It's full, of people who, it's full of people who want to talk psychobabble and who don't want to use good common sense because good common sense and what the big book says you will intuitively know, intuition and intuitive knowledge is not measurable. And in my world, if you can't measure it, they say it doesn't exist, but I know it's there. And if I can get you just to grab a little bit of it, there's a chance for you too. And now I have a chance to work with these little kids and with families. We opened a child unit up and that's where Jesse is. I used to think that how bad it was for me, the practicing alcoholic. And I know today that it's the little ones around, the four-year-old and five-year-old, the six-year-old, the wives around the practicing alcoholics who are injured the most. Hell, you can't hurt us. We just, we just drink booze and ignore it all. They live in it and feel like they're going crazy. That little boy lives in it and feels like no one loves him. And thank God I know how to love myself. And thank God I know how to love somebody else. And I didn't know that when I got here. I didn't know that. You know, life is good. Life is good. People don't know what to think about me because I'm happy all the time. Like it says in the big book, I used to be, in 1983, when I came to Alcoholics Anonymous, that little boy who was fooling himself inwardly while he whistled in the dark. That's how I was. If you'd have walked up to me in 1983 during that year, a short period of time I was in AA, and said, do you want anything drank? I'd have looked at you and lied and said, nope, don't want anything. Today, if you walk up to me and say, you ever think about drinking, I'll think you're right. You bet I think about drinking. I think about picking up that bottle and then thank God I think and the price is I lose me. And it took me a long time to find See, it costs too much to drink for me today. And today I don't got to drink. And believe it or not, there are days when I still say I'll drink tomorrow if I still want to. When I was young and in the program I went to a meeting, Scott's made me think of it last night and there was a lady who talked from the podium and she started talking and she broke down and she said I've been sober for 18 years 
and she said, I just found out my mother has cancer and I can't take it. I can't handle it. And I've never had a God of my understanding. And she pleaded with the group to be her higher power. And I can remember sitting there, I was in the treatment center, and I thought, I don't want to be so. I want a God of my understanding. And when the stuff hits the fan, I want to know that he's there. I believe what it says in the big book when it talks about reliance on things human failing us. And that's other people. And I think when it gets right down to it for me, I better have that man I call God to talk to. And I better be able to fall back there because I'll lie to you, but you can't lie to God. God knows me, and I know my God. I want to thank you all for letting me come and share. I want to end by the little story that I like to end by because it sums up things. And it's about the dog trainer. The young man that was a dog trainer back east and he trained bird dogs. And he did it real well. And he uh, had a writer friend that wrote for, I think it was Fields and Stream or Sports of Field or something. And uh, he wrote about this young man. They got to be good friends. And the young man died an untimely death. And the sportsman who wrote about his articles wrote a story in, one of the, in this magazine about him. And he wrote this little saying, and I read it somewhere. And it says simply, uh, I cannot promise he will stay since all from earth return. But there are lessons taught down there, and I want this boy to learn. And I've looked the whole world over in my search for teachers true and from the throngs that crowd, crowd lives lane. And I've looked everywhere for you, and you were there all along. And I want to thank you for being my teeth. Thank you. Thank <laughs> you.